Amen, amen. Hey, grab your Bible and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. And if you don't have a Bible, maybe pull it up on a phone. But I really want you to have uh, God's Word in front of you in Ephesians 2. And uh, while you turn there, let me just kind of remind you of the structure of this book because uh, the structure of this book really matters for our understanding of what Paul, the writer of this letter, is doing. Um, uh, the first three chapters in Ephesians, as I've told you a few times now, is all doctrine. And so where we've been thus far is... Here are all the things we need to know about what it means to be in Christ. And it's important that we know and understand these things because as we get to the back half of the book and we get into, okay, what does a life of a Christian look like practically? How does that affect the way we live in our households? How does it affect our life as employees? How does that affect uh, the way we fight sin? All of that is built off of this foundation of everything that we are to know about what it means to be in Christ. And so doctrine really matters. And it's why as Paul began to write this letter, he jumped like hot out of the gates. And the, the first long sentence of the body of this letter was all about, let me tell us, let me, remi let me remind us all of the blessings that are ours in Christ in the heavenly places. And he's like, hey, you were chosen before the foundation of the world. If you're in Christ, you were chosen before the foundation of the world. You were predestined for adoption as sons. You've been redeemed by his blood. You've been given an inheritance in Christ that's been sealed by the Holy Spirit. And we just, week one, we just rejoiced over all that is ours in Christ. Uh, as he came to the end of chapter one, Paul had a prayer for them. He's like, now my prayer is that God would open your eyes so that you could actually see the goodness of everything I just wrote. Because you could study it and study it and study it forever, but unless the Holy Spirit opens your eyes to see it, it'll, it'll never really sink down in your heart. And so chapter one was this awesome, worshipful, rich, doctrinal unpacking of all the blessings that are ours in Christ. Now, what can make it richer than what we've already studied? What could make us worship more over all that is ours in Christ than we've already talked about? Well, one thing that could is us actually remembering the reality of who we were before Christ. Because when we remember who we were and where we were before Christ, isn't it even like greater awe over what we have and where we are and who we are in Christ? And this is exactly where Paul goes next. As chapter two begins, he's like, okay, let's stop and let's recall together who we were before Christ. And what we have in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is just what I always tell people is the gospel in a paragraph. And so if you're newer to the faith and you're like, what is, what is like the gospel? What's the tenets of the gospel? Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, unpack for us the gospel in a paragraph. Gospel means good news. And, and so if, if you're a Christian in the room today, this paragraph is deeply important for us because we can't, it, the gospel isn't something we just hear when we're saved and then we move past, we mature on from. No, no, no. The gospel is at the foundation of all of our Christian walk. We need to be reminded of all the bad news that's at the front end of this paragraph. And we need to rejoice in all the good news that's in the back of this paragraph. And we need to do that whether we've been walking with Christ for 30 minutes, 30 weeks, 30 months, or 30 years. We need this paragraph as Christians. And if you're not a Christian in the room, you desperately need this paragraph. 
I would just tell you if you're not a Christian in the room, if you just walked in today and you're like, I'll just be straight with you. I'm not a Jesus follower. I'm here because the cute girl next to me wants me to be here. I, you need to wrestle with something as we unpack this. You need to wrestle with whether you really believe this is God's word. Because about halfway through, you're not going to like me. Halfway through, you're going to be deeply offended. Halfway through, you're going to, like, this is going to be confrontational to your soul. But if you'll not pack it up and walk out, I promise you that this gospel that will confront you on the front end will comfort you on the back end. Because the gospel cannot comfort until it confronts. And our hearts need to be confronted with the truth of what Paul lays out here in this paragraph. And so let's pray. Let's ask for the help of the Holy Spirit. Let's keep it simple today. And let's just look at what God says. You with me? God, help us. Please, Lord, the eyes of our heart won't see these truths without your help. We'll come to some doctrinal understandings and we'll walk out with big, fat, puffy heads but God, you have to, you have to, God. When we read your word, it's not just like studying another novel. We, give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. And God, I'm just casting myself as the preacher of this word on the power of your word today. Lord, show off. Show off with the power of your word to confront the heart of sinners today and comfort us into the love that you've lavished on us as sinners. Please, God, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, as we walk through this paragraph, I, I hope with the outline to lay this out today in a bit of a visual way. I want us to see in one column on the left-hand side all of the bad news of what it means before we are in Christ. I want us to see on the right-hand side all of the blessings now that Jesus has saved us, but I want us to see these things before our eyes today. So if, if you would, uh, read with me in verse 1, Ephesians 2, verse 1. In this paragraph, this gospel in a paragraph starts like this, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Let me read that again. And you were what? And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Before Christ, we were something. Before Christ, we were dead in our sin. This is really, really, really important. Because so often when you hear the gospel shared, I've been guilty of it a time and time again. You hear some, you can hear some watered down version of this, uh, that the gospel at the heart of it, it's about making bad people better or good. The gospel is not that. Now, often you can hear the gospel shared with like, hey, are you unsatisfied? Are you unfulfilled? Like a 1 a.m. infomercial? Then we got something for you. Meet Jesus. Now, I'm, Jesus does satisfy. Let me hear an Amen. He does fulfill, but the heart of the gospel isn't unsatisfied people looking for satisfaction. The heart of the gospel message is before Christ, we're dead, spiritually flatlined, no pulse. And now that, I, I'll be honest with you, growing up in church, right, I heard this again and again and again and again. I mean, I knew Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. 
And the reality of it, didn't, didn't, my, my eyes of my heart weren't open until 19, but I, I knew it again and again. What always made this really challenging for me is I'd look and be like, Mark, you're not dead. Your eyes are open. I'm talking to you. We're interacting. You're not dead. You're, al- you're very much alive. We live in a, a physical realm that we can lose so sight of spiritual deadness. It all very much feels alive, but we have to let God's word confront us and remind us, pre-Jesus, we're spiritually flatlined. Now, this has major implications for us who grow up in cultural Christian setting, okay? Let me tell you the major implication of this. The south side of India isn't so unlike the west side of Michigan where I grew up. This, we have to let this confront us. Because no matter how many times I have said throughout the life of our church, you haven't always been a Christian. Without fail, like a week later, I'll be sitting in a baptism or membership meeting and I'll be like, share your test. When did you come to the Lord? I've always been a Christian. No, you haven't. I know what you mean. I think what you mean is you've grown up in a Christian home. But if this is true, that we were all dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked, we have not always known Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Are we, are we good still? Are we good? I, and I pray if some of you are wrestling with that before the, 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 the morning's out that we can put that to rest today, I hope. Why are we dead? Well, the... It helps us. We're dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. Our sin has made us spiritually dead. All of us know what a no trespassing sign means. Some of us in our teenage years always took it as a challenge to press the boundaries, right? Like, no trespassing means don't go past here. All of us have gone past where God says don't go past, without fail. Every single one of us in the room. So again, back to you, if you're not a Christian in the room, like, you're in good company, Church people aren't people who've never trespassed or gone beyond the limits. Church people are people who've gone beyond the limits and see an awesome Savior who's forgiven them in spite of it. And so all of us have sinned. That sin has made us spiritually dead. Now, uh, just wait. It gets worse. And you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So, before Christ, we were dead in our sin. And the second thing that was true of us before Jesus is this. We were following the way of the world. And we're following the prince of the air. Now, let's unpack those things. What what does it mean that before Jesus, we were following the way of the world? That we're following the course of the world? I think these verses help us understand what that means. If you look back in verse 3, it says, Among whom we all once lived. We all once lived like this. So all of us, again, without exception, we were all at one time following the course of the world and following the prince of the power of the air. What does it mean that we are following the course of the world? Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. 
So we lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Pre-Jesus, all of us were just doing what our body was lusting after to do, and I don't just mean that in the sexual sense, but we were just doing what our body was lusting after to do, and we were just doing what our mind had fixated and wanted to do, our depraved mind had fixated on. To say it like this, we do what we do because we want what we want. Pre-Jesus, we wanted the gratification. We wanted our pleasure. And whatever sense that meant, more achievement, more fulfillment, more sexual pleasure, more, whatever that was, we were just fixated on getting what we wanted. And we were doing what we're doing because we wanted what we wanted. Now, who was behind all of that? Who was driving that in us? The prince of the power of the air. We were following the prince of the power of the air. Who is the prince of the power of the air? So if someone ever walked up to you and said, hey, have you ever followed Satan? We would be deeply offended. What do you think? I'm one of those crazy like Satanists? No, I've never followed. Let the word of God confront us. Brock, before Jesus as you were following the way of the world, your master was the enemy in that. I, just, I don't like it. I, I want to argue in it. But I have to let the word of God confront me on it. So, what's the fate of those who are dead, spiritually dead, are following the way of the world, following Satan as master. The fate of that is not good news. Back to verse three. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of what? Of wrath like the rest of mankind. So we were, before Jesus, dead in our sin, we're following the way of the world, prince of the power of the air, and we were a child of God's wrath. Okay, wrath. Wrath is God's just punishment poured out. Wrath is God's just punishment poured out. It's just because God is holy righteous, right all the time, and full of justice. Sin must be met with the wrath of God. For God to not respond to sin with wrath would be contradictory to his very nature. And because we live in a time that we'll, where, where we'll often ask a question like this, how could a loving God be a wrathful God? That question shows the gap in our understanding between the holiness of who God is and the utter sinfulness of the sinfulness of who we are. 
Joseph Schumann says it like this, God's wrath is his love and action against sin. Not often do people want to marry wrath and love, but it's actually full of love that God would pour his wrath out on sin. And apart from Jesus, we, it says, by nature, by our very nature, are children of his wrath. By nature. It wasn't just Brock was living along and then, oh, there he did. He, man, he blew it at 13. No, by my nature, apart from Jesus, I was deserving of his wrath. So the reality of the first part of this paragraph, and non-Jesus followers don't pack up now, but the reality is we were dead in our sin, following the way of this world and the prince of the air, and children of God's wrath. Now, you want me to quickly get to verse 4. And I feel the tension of wanting to get there too. But before we move there, a couple implications that I want to raise. Christians, would you just linger over the first three verses and be reminded of who you were pre-Jesus so you can rejoice all the more in what's to come in the rest of the paragraph? Christians, would you be instructed from the first three verses so that God will fill your heart with compassion for those who are not yet Christians? We can have a really bad habit, as Pastor DJ said this week in the office, of holding unbelievers to believer standards and getting really mad when they fall short of it. God, remind me that before Jesus, I was dead following the way of this world and a child of your wrath. Fill us with compassion for those who've not yet seen that. Non-Christians, I'm just going to shoot you straight. You can't stay on the fence with what you've just been confronted with you either have to say, this is the word of God. I don't have Jesus, so I am spiritually dead, following Satan as my master, and if, if this doesn't change, I will experience the wrath of God. Or you will have to say, bull. It's all bull. I don't care. But you can't ride the fence with this. And before today's out, you have an opportunity to get off the fence and jump all in on the Savior who is the remedy for all of the awful we've just walked through in the first part of the paragraph. And so, the gospel confronts. It confronts us with who we are apart from Jesus. And if the paragraph ended there, we would have very quiet, depressed lunches. But it doesn't. And as verse 4 begins, you can hear the soundtrack begin to change. 
you can hear the hope begin to fill the air with the first two words of verse 4. We're going to walk now out of the muck and mire of who we were in our sin, and we're going to begin to ascend the mountaintop of what Christ has done for us because that was our reality. And the whole turning point hinges on the first two words of verse 4. And the first two words of verse 4, you tell me, are, but God, but God, but God. Praise the Lord for these two words. Because the gospel message, the good news message is not you were dead in your sin and you had to figure out some way to get life. The gospel message was not, yeah, you were following the way of the, the, the master who was your enemy and, and you got to figure out how to change that. The, the gospel message is not the, you were a child of God's wrath and you were hopeless in that. No, one has come, God has acted God has done this. God has made a way out of the muck and mire to the mountaintop. God has acted here to make this awful news into good news. And how has God acted? Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. But God, let's just step through it. Don't miss any part of it. I don't got any dog and pony show here today for you, right? We're just walking through the word. But God being rich in mercy. Simply put, God's mercy is his withholding from us what we rightly deserve to get. God is rich in withholding the judgment on those who were dead following Satan and objects of his wrath. He was rich in his mercy. Why? Because of the great love with which he loved us. God loves you. It's so, it, it sounds so cliche and shallow because you hear it all the time, but you can't miss this. God loves you. With a great love, he has loved you. And how do we know that? He has made us alive even while we were still dead. He lavished his love on us even while we were dead in our sins, and he has made us alive in Christ. And so if before Christ we were dead in our sin, but God, now we are alive together with Christ. There is nothing you can do to make yourself alive. He comes to the end of verse five, and he wants us to understand something that he's going to nail again and again and again. You have, made a lot, you have been made alive together with Christ by God's grace, period. Period. It's not God's grace plus. You have made, been made alive together with Christ by the grace of God, and it gets better. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So you were pre-Jesus, following the way of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, but God, now we are saved by grace and seated with Christ. 
Let's start with the saved by grace thing. Because so many of us in this room have a doctrinal, theological understanding of this, but I'm willing to bet so many of us still live functionally as if that's not true. We truly struggle to understand grace. Anytime you have found yourself after really blowing it morally, feeling like, okay, now I'm going to do five good things, and Lord, come on, I'm going to try to counteract this out, you have lost an understanding of what's just been taught here. Anytime you're in the room and you're like, I don't know Jesus, I want to know Jesus, but I'm waiting. I'm trying to get on a, on a 40-day, you know, thing where I'd like, I, you know, I'm doing my thing, I'm praying, I'm working hard at it, and you've lost it. You'll make it four days. I give you two. You are saved by grace through faith, period. Not a result of works, period. So ain't no one in this room have anything to boast about. The only boast we have is in our Lord Jesus Christ. We have to understand this. God opened the eyes of our heart to see this. And if you're in the room today and you have never put your faith in Jesus Christ, you've never come empty-handed before him and said, okay, I see it. I'm dead without you. I'm following Satan as my master, and I'm going to experience your wrath if this doesn't change. But I see you have died for my sin, and you offer your death on my behalf by your grace if I will believe. You're like, I, it, it, it's too simple. It's too simple. The alternative is you earning it, and it's impossible. None of us folks will stand before the Lord one day and reach into our back pocket and unroll a spiritual resume. Lord, you see that there, 2015? Planted a church that year. Ain't gonna happen. All of us will stand before the Lord one day and point to Christ as our resume. His work, not our works. That's it. That's it. So now in Christ, we are saved by grace, and this section also unpacked this. We're raised up with him and seated with him. Let me read it. And he raised us up with him, and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Can I be honest with you? You're like, what does that mean? What does that mean? I don't even fully know. I want it. What does it mean that we are seated with Christ? Here's a couple things I think it means. I think it goes back to this inheritance that Paul's been talking about. That in Christ, we're given this inheritance and it's sealed by the Holy Spirit. I think another implication of this is a reminder to us that our citizenship is not ultimately here. But our citizenship is already laid up in heaven with Christ. So we are truly strangers, pilgrims, and aliens walking through this world for his glory until we're with him in his presence fully and finally. And that is already happened and already assured and my citizenship is already laid up there the moment I put faith in Jesus Christ. That's comforting. That's comforting. 
And so we were, we're dead in our sin, now we're alive together with Christ. We were following uh, the Satan as our master, now we are, grace has saved us and we're seated with Christ and we were before Jesus a child of God's wrath. Look at verse 10. Now what are we? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we are now, this last thing, we're an instrument of God's workmanship. We're an instrument of God's workmanship. Now, can I point out the connection between verse 9 and verse 10? Because it's really important that we understand that. We were just told in verse 9 that our salvation is not a result of works so that no one may boast. So there's nothing we have worked for or earned our salvation. And then verse 10 starts and it says this, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Our good works do not save us. But once someone has put saving faith in Jesus Christ, the Lord has given them a new heart, the fruit or the works of their life change. So our good works don't save us, but our good works are certainly evidence that we have truly been saved. When Jesus has come and given us a new heart, our desires change. The fruit of our life changes. We now begin to live and operate seeking to make it our goal to please him, to love him, to love people, and to make disciples. And the fruit of our life, the works of our life, change. As we say around here all the time, once we've come to know Jesus Christ and he's sanctifying us and he's growing us, it's not perfectly, but it is patternly. The fruit isn't perfect, but there's a pattern of growing Christ-likeness and holiness. And so it's really important, I'm coming back to kind of our cultural setting, it's really important that I say this. If your story, if your testimony is, I will, you know, didn't know Christ, and then at a church service or at some event or, or something, you know, I, I raised a hand, I walked an aisle, I prayed a prayer, and if I'm honest, my life looks exactly the same. There's not probably been a new heart that's taken root in you. And now, I'm not saying that many of us didn't legitimately come to faith by praying a prayer, raising hand, walking an aisle. I'm saying the fruit on the other side of that will indicate the heart change that has happened. Jesus says, you'll know them by their fruit, Jesus says, out of our heart flows the things we say and we do. And so this is just an important understanding that Paul says to end this paragraph. Our works can't save us. He's made that abundantly clear. There is no works righteousness. And yet a truly saved heart will see works that seek to bring God glory. And so you look at this chart here. And you look at that left-hand column, and you see who we were before Jesus. And you look at now who we are in Jesus. And I, I want to close 
with a time that I pray will just allow this to be driven home in a very personal, practical way. I want us to apply this paragraph to our own story. And so we're going to have a couple of our vocalists just standing here on the edges of the, the middle section. And I want to invite us, those of you who God gives boldness to, in first service, this was beautiful because everyone, almost everyone started with like, I can't believe I'm standing up here right now, but the Lord prompted me to come share this. I want us to be able to recount and rejoice together what Jesus has done in our lives to save us and change us. And I want to do it through what I just call a three-line testimony. And so as I explain this, as God moves in your heart, just come up and start making a line by the mics here on the outside of the room. But a three-line testimony is simply this. I was. Here's the reality of who I was before Jesus. But God, here's where God saved me. Here's where he opened my eyes to see Jesus. I was saved by grace through faith. Now I'm. Here's how I'm seeing God at work in my life. I'm not perfect. I haven't arrived. But here's where I see Jesus is growing me and changing me. And so come on, be bold, come to the outside of the room, line up right here at the mics and let's share and rejoice together and what Christ has done in our hearts. And as you come, let me just share with you my three-line testimony. Uh, For the first 18 years of my life, I was working really hard to look really good. When I was 19 and I went off to college, God in a dorm room opened my eyes to this amazing thing called grace and showed me that I didn't have to work hard to earn his favor that Christ had done the work for me. And so since then, now I'm over the last 15 years growing in an understanding that Christ is interested in the righteousness that flows from my heart and not anything facade of good looking things that I can do and that's how he's changed me so church we want to rejoice together